Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was giving, given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. There are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people, peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Thanks, Alyssa. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we remember that every bit of it is for our good. That in your sovereign grace, you used men 2,000 plus years ago to write these words down for us so that they could bring us to a place of glory and honor. And so as we uh, dive into this often confusing, often overwhelming text, I pray that the Holy Spirit would provide clarity for us all, Lord, so that we would know you and honor you with our whole lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There's this book called The Persecutor, and it was written by a guy named Sergei Kordakov. Sergei Kordakov was a uh, Russian Soviet Union agent. And uh, his primary job was to hunt down the underground Christian church and break them up and cause harm. And in this book that Sergei writes, it's sort of his autobiography, he describes that him and his guys would practice ways of like hitting and hurting people so that they can break more bones in their bodies so they can inflict the maximum amount of damage possible as they found these churches. 
So in this book, the persecutor, he writes about this one time where they break up this church. And he says there's this like this young, small little 20, 20 year old girl there at the church. And they're like, let's, let's make sure we never see her again. And so her, him and his men go to town on this girl. And uh, a couple months later, they end up getting a, uh, a tip that that church was meeting again. And so they show up, and sure enough, that 20-year-old girl was there again. And this time, Sergey and his guys were like, okay, let's make sure she never shows up again. And so they bent her over and spent the next hour taking turns whipping her until Sergey says her back looked like bloody raw hamburger meat. And they said, like, we're, there's no chance we'll ever see this girl again. A couple of months later, they get a tip, same church group meeting in a house. They show up. And there she is, this 20-year-old girl worshiping Jesus. This time, one of Sergey's men grabs like a bat, and he's like, I'm going to make sure we never see her face again. And he goes after her. There is no shortage of stories like this. Whether we look back at uh, the reign of Nero in the Roman Empire, whether we look at Japan in the 17th century, the Soviet Union, or even today in the Middle East, there is no shortage of stories of Christians being persecuted, tormented, and tortured for their faith. And as you read these stories, a couple of questions eventually comes to mind. One of them, at least for me, if I'm being honest, is like, do I have faith like that? Maybe another question that comes up is, what possesses a person to believe in that way? To be willing to lay down their lives and to suffer and die. Like, what hope is there in living a life like that because of your faith? And those are the kinds of questions that John wants to help answer in the text that we just read. And if I could summarize it down into one sentence, what I think John is trying to say in this somewhat confusing of a text, it's this, that through the church's defeat, she will know the victory of Christ. Through the church's defeat, she will know the victory of Christ. Here's what we're going to do. Um, I got to approach this text a little bit different than the way I normally like to preach. So we're going to spend about 10 to 15 minutes breaking down the symbolisms and the metaphors that are in this text because it is thick. Uh, and then after that, once we have a somewhat clear understanding, we're not going to be able to get to all of them, but we'll get to a couple, the ones that I think are most important to understand the text. And then once we do that, we'll spend the next 10 to 15 minutes applying it to our lives, seeing how, what God has to say to us today. And then I'll spend the next 45 minutes just repeating myself over and over again, if that's cool with you guys. I know some of you want to get to a football game. Bad news, I don't like football, so I'm not in a rush. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 again. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 
The first thing that we need to ask and answer in order to understand this text is what is the temple in the court outside? And the answer is simply this. The temple in chapter 11 is a representation of the church. And we get this answer not by using current events to decode Revelation, but by looking at the Old Testament to understand how Revelation would have been understood by the people who received this letter 2,000 years ago. And in order to understand how they viewed the temple in Revelation, we need to actually go all the way back to the garden, have a good understanding of what the temple is and the significance of it. And so the first really temple that we find is in the Garden of Eden, because it is there with Adam and Eve before the fall that God made the garden his dwelling place. He was with them. And after the fall, he removed the garden from earth, kicked Adam and Eve out. Uh, and if you remember, towards the east-facing entrance of the garden, he laid two cherubim to defend the entrance, angels to defend it. That was kind of the first temple, if you will. And then fast forward a little bit. Uh, they are enslaved by Egypt, are freed, and now roaming the desert for 40 years. And God has them build a tent or a tabernacle. And this tent, this tabernacle was meant to be a mini Eden. It has all the same fixings of what Eden looked like. It has an east-facing entrance guarded by angels. It has a lampstand that represents the tree of life. This was a little like taste of heaven in heaven and Eden on earth where God now presides. It is where he dwells. And as God's people make it into the promised land, this temporary tent becomes something more permanent. It becomes a temple. And in the middle of this temple is known to be the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. And nobody is allowed in to enter because no one is worthy. Even the high priest can only go in after a rigorous ceremony. So if you guys are following, God in a garden, God in a tent, God in a temple. And then Jesus shows up. And in John 1, 4, it says this, that the word became flesh and what? Is it up there? And... The word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. That word dwelt could be translated as like tented or tab tabernacled. In other words, God, Jesus himself was making an audacious claim. He was God incarnate. He was in, he, it was God indwelling. In John 2, Jesus says that his body is a temple, and he says that he's going to destroy this temple. In three days, he will rise it up again. And if you remember, the Jewish leaders at that time were furious at that claim. They thought he was talking about the temple, when in reality, he was talking about his own body. Then, after Jesus' death and ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within those who follow him. And so for the rest of the New Testament and all through Revelation, God's people, his universal global church where the Holy Spirit dwells is known as his temple. And here's how he puts it in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, in Revelation and all through the New Testament, the temple is not a building in Israel. It's not some future building that we need to construct in order to initiate an end times countdown. When you read the temple in the context of the New and Old Testament, it becomes clear that the temple in Revelation 11 is the universal global church. And the outer court, which he described earlier, he assigns as the persecuted church. And we know this because he links the outer court to the two witnesses and to the lampstand. So let's read verse 3. Here's what it says. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days and clothed in sackcloth. And so now we have to ask ourselves, why two witnesses to describe the persecuted church? Here's what G.K. Beale says about these guys. The two witnesses are not individuals, but rather represent the corporate church in its capacity as faithful, prophetic witnesses to Christ. There are a couple of reasons, actually quite a bit of reasons why G.K. Beale comes to this conclusion. I'm going to give you guys three, though. The first, we already discussed, John links the temple, the outer court, the lampstand, the olive tree. He basically links all of these things together to represent different aspects of the church with a primary focus on the persecuted church. Second, if you guys remember, we went through the letters, the seven churches, to the, the seven letters to the churches. And as you might recall, out of those seven letters, how many churches did not receive an accusation by Jesus? It was two. And it was uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And lastly, later on, John is going to reference Moses and Elijah, and they are known as two faithful witnesses. Okay. So we've got a temple We've got a lampstand, we've got two witnesses, we've got a ton of numbers. We're going to stop for a second now and kind of explain the way symbolism works. Because here's what tends to end up happening as we get into these like 42 months and the 1,260 days and the two witnesses and the fire pouring out of someone's mouth. It can get really disorienting really fast. And what people often do is they use these numbers and these signs as like a rubric to determine the future. But that is not how the early church would have understood these numbers and symbols. Remember this, that the early church saw themselves as deeply embedded in a part of God's redemption story. And the Old Testament to them was like what pop culture is today. It is where they got their language and understanding and how they understood how to make sense of their lives. And this phenomenon is not unique. Like people do this all the time. People do this today. It's not unusual it's not unique to the Bible that we use symbols and numbers to tell a story. And I'm going to give you guys an example right now. I'm going to ask Danny Lee a question. He doesn't know I'm going to do this, right? This is not planned. Danny, I'm going to give you two numbers, and you're going to tell me what they mean. Eight and 24. Kobe Bean Bryant. If I said 81, 
That's right, highest scoring total. So with two numbers, 8 and 24, Kobe Bryant, 81, highest scoring total in modern American history. 81 could also mean a city, Toronto, a team, the Raptors. You see in basketball culture, like in any other culture, really numbers matter. They help tell stories, right? If I said 23, somebody would say Jordan. If I said MJ, they might say Jordan. If I said GOAT, we would know greatest of all times and all of the debates that go on around that. You see, we use numbers to tell a story. Now imagine this. I am going to pick on Danny a little bit. Imagine that Danny and I are going to go play basketball and he's like, dude, I'm feeling good tonight. I'm going to go for 81 tonight. Could he go for 81? I mean, he could. He probably won't. <laughs> no offense. He could. Imagine this, though. Well, actually, the question is, like, should I take Danny literally that he's going to go for 81 points? Is that what he literally means? Now, imagine that I treated Danny as some, like, prophet that could never be wrong. And we go out and play basketball that night, and he doesn't score 81 points. And then I got to go home, and I'd be like, okay, well, maybe he didn't mean 81 points that night. Maybe he needs another night that we play basketball. And over and over again, we show up and play basketball, and he never scores 81 points. And so then I go back, and I'm like, but he's not. He's got to be like this perfect prophet. He can't be wrong. So maybe when he said he's going to score 81 points, maybe he meant one of his kids are going to score 81 points. So then I start watching his kids and his grandkids, and nobody ever scores 81 points. And imagine someone else is like, but he's got to be the prophet, right? So maybe what Danny actually meant was that if you totaled all of the points that he ever scored out of all the times that you guys played basketball, that would equate to 81 points. Do you see what I'm saying here? Like if we misunderstand the meaning of that number, we totally miss what Danny was trying to say. We use symbols of the heroes of our day to help tell our stories, to help make sense of the world around us. And that is exactly what John is doing with the Old Testament. He's not giving us some sort of mathematical equation to try to figure out what's going to happen in the future. He's looking back at the Old Testament because everyone in that day would have seen their stories interwoven with the heroes of those days. And he was using the numbers and those symbols to help them make sense of what was happening specifically while they were being persecuted. And with that said, we can look and what we know about 42 months and 1,260 days is that roughly means about three and a half years, which in the Old Testament meant a time of trial. In Elijah's situation, situation, excuse me, the season of judgment, of drought in 1 Kings lasted 42 months. For Moses, his stages in the wilderness were 42 months. And both Moses and Elijah, two witnesses, are referenced later in verse 6. Listen, he says, the power to shut the sky, here's the drought, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And here's a reference to Moses, that they have the power over the water to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. So do you see that John is not giving some vague outline of events that will happen? And it's not quite right to say that John is simply talking about events that have happened. Rather, he is linking, linking the current and future story of the persecu persecuted church to the people of the Old Testament. 
He's helping the persecuted church understand what is happening and how to respond by using stories in the Old Testament. So with that in mind, let's take those few, there's a lot of symbols and metaphors in here, but we're going to take those few and we're going to read our text again. And we're going to see if it starts to make a little bit more sense. And then out of that, we'll move into a bit of application. I'm going to go ahead and read it. I think it'll be up on the screen. Yay. I was way too excited about that. Church planning, when things go right, you get excited. (laughs) When I was given a measuring rod like a staff, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the outer court, the court outside the temple, that's the persecuted church, leave it out, for it is given over to the nations that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, the persecuted church, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. That is simply speaking the truths of God using his word. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. That they have the power to shut the sky. Here's Elijah. That no rain may fall during the days of the prophecy. And they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood. There's Moses. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and the languages and the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Absolute disrespect. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on earth. And they did that to Jesus, didn't they? But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. This is a reference to the Valley of Dry Bones, which is an incredible story in the Old Testament. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. Anytime someone's passing through a cloud, it's a sign of victory and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. Earthquakes represent the ending of one kingdom and often the coming of another. And the 10th of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Do you guys see now how this is this like symbolic metaphor on how John uses things that have already happened. He references them to bring hope to those who are suffering. And he is reminding them that in the end, even when it looks like you will be defeated, you will actually be victorious. The last hour when all seems lost, God will breathe life into them and the persecuted church will be vindicated. Now, here's the thing. 
kind of weird to me to talk about the persecuted church in an American context. Because, like, we just, we just can't compare our experiences to the actual persecuted church. Just take, for example, if you guys remember in 2015 when ISIL captured those 21 Coptic Christians and they released that video of them being beheaded. That was, like, if you guys remember that, it was shocking to the Western world, but it was nothing unusual. The only thing unusual about that one is that it was like this global video that we all got to watch. Or like this past July, where 100 Christian kids were kidnapped from their own beds and held at ransom because of their faith. Or I just read a story and we were talking about it as a family is that this woman uh, in the Middle East converted to Christianity and her own husband turned her into the authorities and they stoned and burned her alive out on the street in broad daylight while people were walking and going to work. So like, what do we got? They removed prayers from school. Like the Ten Commandments is no longer at like City Hall or whatever. Like, we just, we just can't compare. And yet, I wouldn't call it persecution, but there is a type of social pressure that we are experiencing today as Christians in America that perhaps our parents or our grandparents did not experience. I wouldn't call it persecution, but I would call it social pressure. And a part of the reason is because we are becoming a pluralistic society. What that means is essentially we maybe grew up or at least our parents and our grandparents grew up in a Judeo-Christian society in which Christianity was sort of the default, dominant, go-to religious understanding that was acceptable. But as we move into pluralism, the way that the secular world looks at Christianity is they view it as one of many viable options. And for that matter, they also have a lot of questions because of certain things that have happened in our history. So for that reason, there is, in fact, a social pressure. We are, as people have recognized, starting to live as exiles in America, realizing that, like, this is not a Christian nation. In reality, it never has been a Christian nation, but it's becoming more apparent to us today. And the way I see it is that we have at least three ways that we can respond as we move into a more pluralistic society and experience these social pressures of being exiles in America. The first way we can respond to social pressure of pluralism is by being like the world and seeking power. This means, or this will look like, fighting meaningless culture wars whenever policy doesn't go our way. It'll look like us versus them mentality where it's like us against the world and whatever they're doing is, bring, is slide, slowly sliding us into hell. And in an us versus them mentality, anybody who's a bridge builder that's on our side will see them as compromisers and they'll need to be canceled. When we seek power, we ultimately claim to worship Jesus, but the re, what we really worship is power and comfort and praise. When we seek power, we will make kings and prophets out of anybody who promises to deliver us away from persecution and back into social dominance. And this has happened in the Old Testament. We see it with Saul. 
Remember that God's people didn't have a king. He didn't want him to have a king, but they begged for one. They said, go out before us. We want a king to go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel warned them that what would happen would be bad. And so God sent Saul. He sent an answer to the prayer, a king, but it was also a, a form of reprimand. And they worshiped him. They said, to whom, here's what Samuel says to Saul, to whom is all the desire of Israel turned to if not to you? And yet Saul, as the leader that they demanded, claimed to be for the people. But as you read the text, you realize that all he wanted to do is rule over the people. Saul was a form of wrath that God sent to his people. Here's the irony. Is that people who seek power are far more secular than they care to admit because secular culture will win with power. But Jesus's way of building his kingdom comes from meekness and humility. The second way that we can respond is by outright abandoning our faith. Ultimately, this kind of person also comes to Christianity for power, praise, and comfort. This is the kind of person that wants Jesus simply because he provides a foundation for their marriage so that they can feel secure that their spouse will be less likely to abandon them. Or they want simply a moral compass for raising their children. Or they want to feel like they belong to a community that supports their voting preferences. And don't get me wrong, Christianity does offer some of these things, but if Jesus isn't the reason why we are a Christian, then it's only a matter of time that we abandon our faith. And I've already seen this happen. I've got friends who like, we grew up, in, we, we grew up as Christians in Bible studies together. And as, you know, as the, as the common views on sexuality has changes over the last 10, 15 years, I've seen them go from the moral majority to the moral minority and they're out. They'd rather be in with the crowd, it seems. So we could seek power, we can abandon our faith, and the third way that we can respond is to trust Christ in defeat. We can accept the church's vulnerability while still believing in its invincibility. Many will trust, many of these individuals will tr trust Jesus' promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against a church. We'll look at verses like 1 Peter and realize that God has plans to refine the church. We'll look at all the dwindling numbers and we'll realize like that's not a reason to be sad because we know according to 1 Peter that he's refining the church. And at the end, what ends up happening is we have more refined, pure, and potent church. See, this kind of person looks at church history and they're encouraged because they realize that the small and persecuted church, that's where God goes to work. After all, it was the persecuted church in Rome that birthed, that exploded Christianity onto the global scene. And it's the persecuted church in China and Japan today that is outgrowing American Christianity. You see, some will see this shift and say, bring it on. Refine us, Lord. Humble us because we've grown fat and lazy with our faith. And of course, how is this possible? How could a church facing social pressure or outright persecution hold fast hope? How do we know that humility and grace and love and sacrifice is the right way? Because we look to Jesus, who lived a life of humility 
in love and sacrifice. We see him mocked and beaten and betrayed. We see him laying in a tomb for three days as his his clothes are passed around like souvenirs. And then we get to see his resurrection victory. This is the subversive way of Jesus' kingdom, power through humility, victory through defeat. And as followers of Jesus, we can take comfort knowing that if we're on the same path, then we are on a path of victory. I started talking about Sergey and that young girl. As I mentioned, that guy grabbed a bat and was like, we'll make sure that we never see this girl's face again. And Sergey, uh, he says in his book that he grabbed his sergeant by the hand and was like, hold on a second. This girl's brave. Like, there's something different about her. Sergey would eventually leave the Soviet Union, move to Canada, and after some time, come to a saving faith. And he looks back on his journey and he realizes that that moment with that young lady, her name was Natasha, was the beginning of, of this conversion for him. It was a seed that was planted. And so in his book, he dedicates it to her. And here's the last paragraph in that book. To Natasha, whom I beat terribly, and who is willing to be beaten a third time for her faith. I want to say Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed. And I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me. I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha. Wherever you are, I will never, ever forget you. See, Revelation 11 is about God protecting the persecuted church. And through her faithful witness, bringing more and more to a saving faith, this is how he plans to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.